You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 21st of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. What uh, the Italian government has uh, put on the table, we see a risk of, of the country sleepwalking into instability. The hands of the European Commission and Italy hover over their holsters as high noon nears. My guests Alessio Patalano and Robert Fox will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including President Donald Trump's curiously equivocal response to the murder of a Washington Post columnist by agents of Saudi Arabia, China's ongoing expansion into the South China Sea, and Switzerland prepares to go to the polls to vote on the length of cow horns. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Alessio Patalano, reader in war studies at King's College London and an expert on Asian maritime defence, and Robert Fox, defence editor for London's Evening Standard. Welcome both. And we will start tonight with Europe, but before any listeners scream and fling their listening device and or themselves into the nearest pond, not Brexit. Instead, we turn to Italy, which is facing or possibly forcing a showdown with the European Commission. Last month, the EC rejected Italy's draft budget and ordered ordered, rather, Italy's government to return to the drawing board to come up with something less profligate, something which Italy's government has declined to do. Financial sanctions now loom, possibly including a fine of 0.2% of GDP, which would run into billions of euros. Um, Alessio, let's, let's start with where the Italian government is going with this. Did they draft this budget trying to force this argument with the EU? I think in part that, that, that that's absolutely the case. Um, as in, well, first of all, we should say that there is no real regulations within the EU that would suggest that the EU has any right to say anything about this budget. Uh, because even on the worst possible assumption about it, they are planning to run into a 2.4 uh, percentage um, of, of their GDP, um, which is well below the 3% mm-hmm. that is required by the EU. But, but I think they also, so at one level, there is a gr- one of the reasons why the, the, the five-star movement and the League went into power was in part based on um, a narrative that they were presenting to public um, that was, um, you've seen what happened to Greece, you see what is happening in Spain, and we might be next on the list, and the problem is we need to start pushing back to the German-led Middle Europe EU uh, 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 sort of context. And so there has been now for a few months a bubbling um, beneath the surface of great discontent in which pointing the fingers towards Brussels and in particular sort of the German approach to Brussels, whether it's true or not, it's neither here nor there. But it's been part of the official narrative of both the Five Star Movement and Liga. Um, so you could say that the budget is designed to bring up that fight. Having said so, there is also a question of the fact that the um, economic growth in Italy has not been prompted by uh, uh, you know strict financial measures controlling the 
uh, the monetary aspects of the country. So now you need to start spending. They need to try something else, right? And so in basic economics 101, if uh, uh, control over monetary control does not work, then you have to start spending. And you have to start sort of like create demand by injecting uh, money into new projects, new infrastructure, creating movement that will generate then income taxes and the sort of reduction of inflation rates. And, and that's also what they're doing. So on the one hand, of course, yes, they're pointing the fingers towards um, uh, uh, Brussels and say like, you know, you and it's not your right to do so. If you wanted to go this way, it's up to us to do so. Um, on the other, they genuinely need to try something different to reject the economy. This might be the answer to that. Robert, what happens or do we know what happens if, if neither side flinches? Well, what is being predicted, and now they've taken it off the table, is that you have a rerun of the crisis uh, with Greece, where they got so heavily into debt. Just to add what Alessio said, um, in the bad old days, as it were, during the Cold War, what Italy did whenever it got into this kind of trouble, and it happened frequently, was A, it borrowed a load, load more, generally speaking, from Germany, and B, adjusted interest rates, and C, devalued. Which, of course, it can't do anymore. It it can't do anymore. And this is the point. And this is where I follow exactly his line of argument in that actually this is a real challenge to the whole schema of convergence in Europe, of having what Joe Stiglitz would call more Europe, of it getting together. You look at Italy. Italy is a very big economy. It's now the third economy, if you take Mm. Britain out of it, in, in, in the EU. Can you really face it down? I actually am. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm much more British about the about the Italian ap- approach uh, than um, Alessio. I think the Italians are really serious. There is a serious requirement. There are desperate issues such as youth unemployment, but above all, infrastructure. And we've had the outward and visible signs of this uh, with two things really: the, the bridge, but above all, the which hardly been reported here is the continuing earthquakes and earth tremors in central Italy, which has done a tremendous amount of damage. It's not only road, rail, but it's it it it, it it's um, also uh, you know building, public building, and so on. And the motorway structure, which I think is 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 a work of almost genius, post-war is post-World War Two, and it's in desperate need of uh, of repair. The pump needs to be primed almost on a new New Deal mm. basis. And I think what Italians worry about is that they just get the tin ear from 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 europe particularly from mrs merkel but the uh, european central bank ironically in the hands uh, 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 of an italian and i don't think it's going to be a rerun of uh, what has happened before this is why i disagree with the principal uh, commentators still worth reading about this joseph stiglitz nobel prize winning um, economic writer uh yanis varifarkis and and um, the various characters from Eastern Europe, I think it is a moment of crisis. And uh, Sean O'Grady, the Independent, said perhaps it's a bigger crisis than Brexit for the EU. Actually, to 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 say on on this particular point, I think Robert is absolutely right. Um, even if you go to Rome, you know the the underground, uh, the public transport is is in disarray. Um, and again, it's been sort of barely reported here, but um, there is um, uh, because of the changing weather patterns. For example, Rome has gone through like a massive number of problems with a basic uh, uh, street infrastructure collapsing right, left, and centre. Um, there is a, a desperate need. 
to a general upgrade. You know, Italy is becoming like a relatively sort of elderly lady that is in desperate sort of need of a serious lift up. Okay, well, let's move on and look now at the United States, the president of which, Donald Trump, has decided to waive off the murder of a Washington Post columnist resident in America's capital because his killers are economically important. In a statement, bizarre even by Trump's remarkable standards, he acknowledged that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman may have known of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, but that he had determined that Riyadh's economic, military and intelligence relationship with Washington, D.C. was more important. The world is a very dangerous place, globally the president's statement and indeed for journalists who challenge tyrants it has just become much more so um robert first of all a couple of responses uh, from american congress folk senator bob corker interestingly the republican chairman of the senate committee on foreign relations said i never thought i'd see the day a white house would moonlight as a public relations firm for the crown prince of saudi arabia uh, and tulsi gabbard the democratic representative from hawaii uh, Put it piquantly, where she said being Saudi Arabia's bitch is not America first. Uh, are both of those more or less fair responses? They are fair responses because I think Khashoggi is a sort of game changer. Don't ask me what to. But uh, what is going on at the moment is there are real hardliners and there are big banking interests involved supporting both President Sisi of Egypt, and they're completely entwined in this, and the regime in in Saudi Arabia. And what they're trying to say to the likes of me and Alessia is uh, Mad Dog Khashoggi. He was really uh, front man, back man, back man for the Muslim Brotherhood, was plotting all sorts of evils and violent overthrows. And what I knew of Jamal, there was not, nothing much particularly uh, violent about him. And th- although he had been a mild supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood and st- it still adhered to its principles, he said, well, my heroes are really in Hala, in, in, in Tunisia, because they're democratically elected and they're prepared to pay, uh, share secular power. So the demonization of Khashoggi is not playing at all. And this is why um, I think there's a very curious thing going on with Trump. I think there's a workaround going on because um, there are eyes, uh, and more than that, as we've just heard from your quote, being uh, cocked at the the whole story. Mm -hmm. And I think people like Jim Mattis and actually Mike Pompeo, who's proving quite an effective Secretary of State, they're putting their markers in. They've sent a new man to be ambassador in Riyadh. And he does not take prisoners. It is a former general, uh, John Abizade, who is first-generation uh, Lebanese. He was very active. Mm-hmm. in, the, in the, the. He's a fluent Arabic speaker. I think he's no regime patsy. From what I can see, the, 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 this contest is now on, particularly with the arguments, most importantly, about Yemen, secondly about Iran, third about Qatar. Actually, they're selling shares in uh, Mohammed bin Salman at the, uh, at the moment. And there's nothing that Trump and his now silent son-in-law, Jared Kushner, can do about it. Um, Alessio, Trump keeps spouting numbers about Saudi Arabia's investment in the United States. He talked about this $450 billion, a, a fantastic sum for which there appears to be extremely scant actual evidence. Um, is Saudi Arabia's economic importance to the United States and the wider West 
frankly oversold. Could we not just afford to live without them? It would be shocking to learn that that, uh, that President Trump is actually overselling something. I know, I, it'd be I, astounding. astounding. Unprecedented. I, I, unprecedented. Exactly, the, mm. the word I had in mind. oversold. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yes, uh, I think it is, uh, there is a study that has just been um, published um, and, and of course any study uh, will always be as good as the next study that proves they're wrong, but so far the numbers look uh, um, quite significant and solid, uh, suggesting that in reality the relevance in terms of arms sales, which is the point that uh, President Trump raised, uh, is only a fraction of what the president mentioned. And apparently the workforce in the United States that is receiving the benefit of these arms sales is about 1% of the entire workforce of the United States. So that's definitely not um, uh, 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 sort of uh, uh, reaching for the, light, the right sort of level of selling what exactly is the contribution to the United States. I think Robert's point about the geopolitical value of Saudi Arabia is the key point here. And what Trump is doing is talking to his constituency, which will not pay attention to any study coming out of D.C., um, uh, that, that, that is giving numbers that will make them feel happy, content, and move on. And I think this is one of the greatest mistakes that we continue to do uh, in a broader sense. We fail to understand that when the, the, uh, President Trump's grandstanding uh, most of the time it's not for international audiences consumption it's not for the likes of me or Robert it's not for you actually uh, <laughs> and, and I don't want to leave you out of that um, it really is about that constituency that supports him at home and that doesn't pay attention to details like Trump does not and it just is sort of happy to hear a kind of story that is reassuring to them, right? And if this materializes with a possibility of imposing greater pressure on Iran, then he will be able to claim victory on that one too. And by that time, if that happens, nobody will remember that he actually was overselling something about Saudi Arabia. And that's the incredible story about this. Uh, Robert, just to the, jump the, in, can I just say, Alessio, I think that's where the plot's gone wrong. Because, because um, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, has drawn so much attention to him with his misspeaking, his missteps, kidnapping the Prime Minister of Lebanon, for example. A lot of those poor fellows, or not so poor, very rich people that he banged up in the hotel, I believe are still there or are under detention in one, one form or another. Qatar, but a above all Yemen, he's let the Iran argument on which Kushner and Trump were majoring, it's slightly off the hook. It's mm. on the back burner But, but, but the on the subject of yeah. the Iran argument, Robert, yeah. which Donald Trump did make in his weird statement that you, we need Saudi Arabia because Iran, does that even make any sense? And if you were applying cold logic to this situation, is there not an argument at this point that if you had to pick one and you're the United States, Iran, looking ahead, would be a much more productive and reasonable ally? Well, Iran is a very, very tough proposition indeed. It's actually much Sorry. better much better organized than people cred take credit for. Yes, they bang on about the Ayatollahs. Yes, they ba bang on about the Revolutionary Guard, but they can put over a hundred, oh, sorry, over a million people under arms. They are very, very tough. The kind of absolutely weird stuff, to use your phrase, that has drifted out in the discussions between Trump and Netanyahu, another very important factor in the whole thing, that really we ideally, and this is old speak from Richard Pearl and from John Bolton, but we're not hearing from him at the moment, though he is the National Security Advisor, you know, a possible regime change. 
Andrew, I think it's totally off the cards. It is so unrealistic, particularly as the two champions of this in the region, namely Mohammed bin Salman and Benjamin Netanyahu, are in such desperate trouble. Um, not desperate, but serious trouble. More desperate, actually, Netanyahu, because he may not, he may not survive the current uh, flick of the, uh, uh, of the political uh, crisis in, in, in Israel. Uh, Alessia, there is a remark, I think, often attributed to Bill Clinton about America's relationship with Saudi Arabia, where he said, remind me who the superpower here is. Uh, we did devote an entire episode of the Foreign Desk to this question quite recently, but seriously, if the entire Western world basically said to Saudi Arabia, this is more trouble than it's worth until you get with the program, we're done with you. What's actually the worst that could happen? No, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think that is a perfectly possible option. Don't you think it started already? And, uh, it could have been. Well, I, I, I hope so. But Well, mm. I mean, let's put it this way. I think it depends very much where where we think the centre of gravity of this discussion is all about. Um, and I think when it comes to Trump, the centre of gravity really is the sort of conservative power base that is behind him, which at the moment has not really put any serious thought about any alternative. So unless that comes around... Um, Hill is going to continue to make up stories about it to justify why it is important to back Saudi Arabia. So here what we're talking about is is, is two different questions. There's the, the, the one that is about the geopolitics, or if you want, the, the rational, logical um, debate about international politics, which is the, the one we were having. And then there's the other debate that is about, OK, um, if you take that line of support... Um, that is behind Trump, what you left with, not much. And I think that's part of the issue. The issue is that unless you have someone at the helm saying, well, I'm contemplating options, I can look different directions, then it's very difficult to have that kind of conversation. I don't think that is happening in the Trump camp. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Robert Fox and Alessio Patalano. Coming up next, China's continuing insistence that where ownership of the South China Sea is concerned, there's a clue in the name. The Escapist takes you to places less explored. In this special edition, we hop on a hodgepodge of connecting trains to recreate the story journey of the Orient Express from London to Istanbul. We pass by drive-through liquor stores and small desert towns on an adventurous road trip from New Orleans to Texas and visit Europe's highest airports. For the jet setters among you, we'll show you how to beat jet lag in cities from Hong Kong to LA and reveal our annual travel top 50, highlighting the best in transport and service from the most picturesque rail journey to the airline you'll want to board for your next trip. Perhaps that next flight will deliver you to Cairo or Madeira or the island of Tashima. We'll take you there and we'll tell you where to stay, drink and dine next time you find yourself far from home. We've even put together a wardrobe for wherever your travels may lead you, as well as an eclectic selection of books and songs to keep you entertained on the journey, when you're not too busy looking out the window spotting the places you've yet to visit. The Escapist from the Editors and Bureau of Monocle magazine is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Robert Fox and Alessio Patalano. Now, the building spree by China in the South China Sea is not news, but the latest iteration of it is. Satellites have spotted what appears to be an entirely new facility built in extraordinarily quick time on Bombay Reef in the Parasol Islands, an area also subject to claims from Taiwan and Vietnam. The new structure is around 90 feet long and 40 feet wide and wasn't there at all as recently as April. It's not clear exactly what 
what it is, but it does feature a radar dome and solar panels. Alessio, any ideas? What 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 is a 90 foot long by 40 feet wide thing with solar panels and a radar dome on it likely to be? By the look of it, I would say it's a signal intelligence triangulation station, which would make perfect sense because there's lots of traffic of shipping going around the area. So it just helps improving your um, domain awareness, um, you know, situation awareness around the area. That that's 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 really sort of easy. I, I must say that um, the fact that it's very, it was very quickly built. I mean, um, let me just sort of give a bit of context here because if we talk about the the three big in the Spratly Islands, the constructions. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, which are often the one the, the ones that we know the most about because they're very big. Um, if you take Theory Cross, Theory Cross is is is, is about one point five times the, the the whole size of Heathrow Airport. Heathrow is not a small place by 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 no sort of Indeed not. Um, uh, compared to terms. If you take Mischief Reef and the whole reef and the lagoon inside, is about the size a bit more in between Zone One and Zone Two of London. <laughs> okay. I mean, you can park a whole fleet in there. Um, and you will have troubles. So, you know, the Chinese are now accustomed uh, in terms of scale of uh, reconstruction or artificial island building or military installation building in the middle of the South China Sea with stuff that, by comparative terms, you know, make this one look like the thing that you do on Sunday morning before breakfast, which uh, is ba- basically what they did. Now, <laughs> um, really, um, I-, I think what's interesting here, the real element of the story is how the um, CSIS um, Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative has now ended a different type of game, um, which is as soon as the Chinese are out there, and most notably Xi Jinping is going out there in Southeast Asia trying to make up this absolutely interesting yet extremely difficult to believe narrative of China as the new global actor, the actor that is defending cooperation, win-win interactions and other bits and pieces. As he goes around trying to tell the story, they come up with the latest imagery, say like, uh, right, about that, um, what about this, 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 this new artificial construction? That is the biggest spammer in the works that you can have. Naming and shaming really doesn't go down well with Beijing. And I think that's the real element of the story. The timing of putting out this new imagery, which suggests that either the Chinese don't care anymore about being named and shamed, or there's something else cooking up. And my fear is that they're probably being given by Washington red lines, not including certain parts of the South China Sea, and so they're moving with trimmings around those red well, lines. Well, on, on which subject, uh, Robert, how concerning is it a the potential that people don't quite appreciate where each other's red lines are? Because, if, uh, of course, we had the situation reported uh, recently that occurred, I think, in September, a near-miss between uh, an American destroyer, the USS Decatur, and, and the Chinese destroyer, the Lanzhou. Um, yesterday, they had a, a fly-past, if you will, by two American B-52s, very close in the vicinity, part of a, a red regular pattern of such missions. Um, this is, of course, all fun and games until someone loses an eye. But, but yeah. how how possible is that? And both sides are trying to make it in their own, from their own vision quite global, because um, as we know that you know what they've whatever they've got left. But the Americans are very keen that the Royal Navy uh, run a boat or a ship or a patrol through every so often. And this is the, the freedom of navigation. The freedom of navigation is very very important, and they've got the French on side with this uh, too. And of course, regional powers. 
like Australia are very, very much concerned. It's very interesting. When this revelation about, I was just looking looking it up, about the Paracel Island, the, the facility, and I'm sure it is an external, it is, is, a, it is a listening post. Um, then there was a, a charm offensive uh, towards Manila. Really, we want greater cooperation because part of the thing that really irks um, uh, the, the Philippines, of course, is the claims to navigation, which is doing tremendous damaging damage to fishing, on which so much of that part of the Philippine economy is, is so, so dependent. But it is it, just to pull back, and I think you're absolutely right in your questioning. It is this sort of neo-mercantilist view. It's almost as if they, that, that, that it's, you know, as if Mao and Marx had, had never really existed, and it's a sort of 18th century <laughs> sort of trading. A privateering kind of approach because um, their great vision they will they they uh, uh, they, they, they will they will um, uh, come back to the the new Silk Road uh, prospect as well and you do see it it's, it's quite striking uh, when you see it now you see them now you don't they have a go it looks as if they were going to try and acquire the whole of Afghanistan Afghanistan is trouble Afghanistan is even more trouble as the Uyghurs are getting terribly trouble so they pull back and they do something else and I think Alessio is absolutely absolutely right that they're pushing and pulling it's very unsubtle but it's shadow boxing um from the Chinese point of view, but I think such is the lack of cognitive algebra, common understanding between the two, the kind of accident you've been describing, I think, is more than likely. Okay, well, finally tonight, while one might have assumed that the UK's recent experience would have seen all sane nations forswear referendums forever, enthusiasm for the single-issue plebiscite remains undimmed in Switzerland, which has had seven this year alone, with three more due on Sunday. One of the issues to be put to the people this weekend is the length of the horns of ruminants. A farmer named Armin Kapal has wrangled the 100,000 signatures necessary to force a vote on the dignity of livestock. He seeks a subsidy for Swiss farmers who let their animals' horns grow as nature intended, rather than dehorning them or breeding the horns out. Um, do either of us, or any of us, in fact, have fixed views on the length of the horns of farm animals? I have experience. <laughs> of both the length of horns of farm animals and of dehorning. God, what a what a right that was. My father was a dairy farmer. He was a tenant mm. farmer. And it was absolutely... I, I hated it when it happened, but apparently mm. it was ecologically sound and so on. But you're quite right. Not only does Monsieur Capel, but it's uh, uh, Madame Claudia, who says um, horns help cows communicate. This is true, and, apparently. And, and yes, regulate, regulate their body temperature and wants 190 Swiss francs as you act, annual, annual subsidy. I think it's really a, 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 a rather wonderful thing. Actually, dehorning, dehorning, particularly of young, um, where you burn them out, they're supposed to, uh, the buds out of uh, young, young uh, animals, barely calves. Um, it's a pretty unpleasant thing to, to, to witness. I think it actually warmed my heart that people really, really okay, so, so And very handsome the ha horned animals are, too. Well, indeed so. So we, we, we have Robert Fox in the yes column there, I think. But Alessio, I, I, I did want to ask about the, the wider question this raises, and it was a question which was a course raised by the Brexit vote, which is the uh, the sense of asking people to vote on subjects about which they may have, frankly, limited knowledge. Now, I, I don't know really a damn thing about cows or indeed goats. I would find it weird were any agency to ask me to cast a, mm. a, a binding vote on this. But is there an argument that if you do this regularly enough, then it kind of encourages people to look into it, to find out more? I mean, certainly as a result of the fact that the Swiss are doing this, I now know 
know more about the subject than I did when I woke up this morning. Um, to be perfectly honest, I, I, <laughs> no, but, but I, I think actually there is a very important point there. Uh, in my experience, um, and it goes a long way back because um, when I was at university, I so happened to have um, uh, quite a good class of friends from Switzerland. In Switzerland, there is a culture of referendum. Mm. And, and, and it, it, as soon as you get the, the, the right to vote, I was always astounded because at the time we were in our early, mid-twenties, and, and I remember that for them, referendums was this, this sacred thing uh, for which they would go out there and sort of try to see the two different sides of the equation, uh, sort of gain information, learn about it. Of course, not everybody was doing it thoroughly, although it's Switzerland is a relatively small place with, with a few people. Um, so, so, so it's easier, actually, if you are in that sort of environment where you are taught that this is part of the ways in which you exercise your democratic rights. And, and it's quite, you know, it, it, it's one of those things. It's like, you know, um, um, it's like recycling. Um, you know, the Swiss <laughs> have got obsession, some, 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 some measure of obsessing about certain things, referendum one of those, but I can tell you this much. Um, it is true that anything they have had the referendum on, you don't need to be someone who's gone to university to be always informed about that specific topic. And I can see the value of that because it brings about, again, I didn't know much about cows this morning, but then I started documenting and I learned lots of things about horns. And, 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 so, and right now I am on the ESCAM. You know, like I really find bizarre that just for gaining a certain amount of space that you can cramp up more cows, you would actually dehorn them. It's not only not human, but also we spend so much time about improving lifestyles. You know, it, exactly. And it's like there is a line that you should draw. On the, I mean, one of the things we learned that we really should draw a line in the sand when it comes to like business, making business sense alone is not the way forward. Referendums. I think it depends on the culture. And I think they're quite fastidious, actually, in the culture of referendums in, in your country, in, in, in oh, yeah, Italy. Absolutely. Because they can yes. only be abrogative. Mm, this is what happened. It is appalling in British culture because it was never envisaged, that kind of plebiscite. And you are susceptible, exactly as Alessio has described, to false prospectors. I am not mentioning the B word. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I think we got almost through the entire programme without anyone actually saying it. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Alessio Patalano and Robert Fox, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Barbara Maimone. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bates. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. <laughs>